Let's start this with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and for this time together. Lord, the opportunity to glorify you and to worship you and to lift up your holy name. God, we ask for, yes, Lord, forgiveness. Lord, for our sins, for the times we have found ourselves unfaithful. And God, we ask for your help and we will honor you each and every day. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. As we continue to work through the book of Genesis, we come upon uh, probably one of the most challenging stories, in my opinion, uh, Genesis 22. And today we take a look at the story of Abraham and Isaac. And as we look at this text, it's really, uh, we see just as much about what's going on with Abraham as we do with Isaac. We don't learn a great deal about Isaac, but we see that we're going to get a look at something very deep, something he had to go through. Now, this is not only an important occurrence in Isaac's life in the story we're reading, um, but it's also, it's also a difficult one. Abraham is told by God in Genesis 22 to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And then immediately everything inside of us wonders how God could demand such a thing. This is one of those stories that, yes, unbelievers and atheists will actually pounce on in order, to, in order to try to attack the character of God. Uh, you might have heard of him, uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, does anybody have any of you heard that name, Richard Dawkins, before? Uh, he is the author of the book, The God Delusion. And for this account, uh, what he says in his book, God Delusion, he says that God is revealed in the Old Testament in these accounts like the one we will be looking at today. He says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, as he says, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a, mis a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, in infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, I'm not even getting most of these words right, set a mask, thank you, masochistic, <laughs> capriciously malevolent bully. Pat, you should read that one. No, he doesn't love Jesus at all. We'll just summarize it in that. You know, he has his doctor of philosophy from the University of Oxford, and he continues to go on. God is jealous, petty, unjust, unforgiving, revengeful, bloodthirsty, a hater of women, fearful of homosexuals, a baby killer, a mass murderer, someone who commands people to kill their own children, having an inflated ego while enjoying watching others injure pain. He is a mean-hearted, evil bully and loves himself for it. There's not a more twisted and erroneous understanding of who God is than how Richard Dawkins perceives who God is. And there's not a greater misinterpretation 
of this story of Abraham and Isaac in which he insinuates when he says, who commands people to kill their own children. He's referring to this particular passage, but to someone that doesn't understand what God is doing. But the truth is, this is what some intellectuals think about our God. And this story is one of the accounts that they use to try to justify their understandings. That's one of the reasons why we come to a story like this. It's important that we as believers take the time and the intentionality, yes, to understand, interpret, and apply these texts as God had them written. So we're going to be reading this passage together, and we will see as we go through this text if what Dawkins sees is really there. And if not, and I'm telling you right now it's not, what do we actually learn about God in this story? So if you would please turn with me to Genesis 22. And I'm going to be reading for you verses 1 through 19. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one... Excuse me, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. As we read through this text, it's important that we take time to notice that right off the bat, we, we see that God had already provided a way, even the moment he asked Abraham to do this. I don't believe it was actually God's intent to kill Isaac, but it was his intent to test Abraham. And even Abraham seems to recognize it. We actually see through this story uh, in multiple circumstances where we see Abraham trusting that God was going to take care of this. After all, when uh, he even left his men behind as he was getting ready to make his way up the mountain, he said, both of us will return. It was not the intent of God to commit filicide. In other words, he doesn't want to see Abraham kill his own son. What he does want to see, though, is Abraham's faith, which was credited to him as righteousness in these actions. So he asked Abraham to do the most unimaginable thing we could think of in order to reveal the genuineness of Abraham's faith. And that is the first thing we need to notice about this passage. God reveals, yes, the authenticity of faith often by the testing of faith. That first verse in Genesis 22 is very important. It says that God tested Abraham. That very first verse. This was all about a test. This was not about God seeking a sacrifice. This was all about seeing Abraham's faith in action. Moses, the author of this account, seems to give us a, an explanatory statement before the story even begins. And it's almost as if he knows the story is going to raise eyebrows, because it most certainly does. He gives us information that Abraham didn't have in that moment, and he tells us what God is doing. He is testing Abraham's faith. Now, what was it about this situation that tested Abraham's faith? And you and I look at this and we're like, well, the answer is pretty obvious. Having Abraham having sent Ishmael away with Hagar, Abraham now only has one son, and that's Isaac. And the future of the covenant promise rested with his son Isaac. He was the child that God gave to Abraham and Sarah in their old age by, yes, his supernatural work. And all of the promises of God were to come to pass according to God himself through Isaac and his seed. Killing Isaac would not only ruin everything that God had promised him, but would also be a direct contradiction of the things that God has even said that he hates. So there was no greater thing God could have asked Abraham to do than to sacrifice his son Isaac. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes um, regarding the, the Pentateuch, he says, Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, do what seems unreasonable, and expects what seems impossible. 
We need to understand that God does to us what he did here to Abraham. He tests us, yes, through various difficulties and trials. And he does this, as we see in James 1, in order to perfect our character and our faith. And according to 1 Peter 1, that perfected, genuine faith will glorify Jesus Christ. Yes, when we go to him in heaven and when Jesus returns to earth. For most of us, this is not a new concept, but it is one we forget quite often and we, we fail to apply. Yes, we want the good of life. We want it 24-7, seven days a week if possible. We want our lives to have the same uh, nickname as what we call New Orleans. Do you, anybody remember what the nickname is for New Orleans? It's called the, oh, big, big the Big Easy. Yes, we want it to be like New Orleans. We want, to be called, we want our life to be the big, easy life. We, we want that. And, and sometimes, yeah, there are times where life can be easy. Sometimes. Sometimes we go through a period where it seems like nothing is going wrong. And, and that's okay, but we learn more about who we are and who our faith is in when the big, easy, when the big easy is flipped upside down and life is difficult. We see here the magnitude of Abraham's faith and, and his trust is revealed in, in this test. And we see the extent and magnitude of our faith when, yes, God brings tests into our lives as well. Maybe it's the test of, of a sickness or, or a financial loss. Perhaps it's family problems or Issues with the job or issues with, you know, fill in the blank. Or maybe some of those things are, are happening as, as part of life, but he still uses these situations in our lives for his good glory. Now, we need to know just how much Abraham trusted God in this situation. To this point, Abraham's trust, you know, we've seen throughout Genesis, we've We've seen it kind of go up and down. We've seen Abraham make some wise decisions. We've seen him make some unwise ones. It's very much a roller coaster. But his faith, we see here, is unwavering. He is convinced that somehow God is going to provide a way to save Isaac and thus preserve God's promised seed. We read in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, it says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was an act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. You see, Abraham's journey that we have seen through everything that we've been through over these last weeks. Abraham's been growing. He's been growing up. He's been maturing his faith. And guess what? Yeah, he's older and he's still learning and he's still growing in the Lord. That should give us some comfort in that we're still learning and growing in the Lord. Whether we're young or whether we're old, we're still on this journey. We see in this text that even if 
God did not stop Abraham. He knew God would provide. What a transformation that we see in Abraham's life. The one that struggled to travel by Egypt and lands and actually pimped out his wife to kings and, and, and whatnot to try to save himself to now actually being willing to even take a single step in the direction of possibly the idea of sacrificing his own son, trusting that God would find a way and make it happen. But then again, Abraham has seen a lot also from the Lord. He's seen him rescue his, his nephew Lot. Abraham sends a small, takes a small army with him and, and saves his nephew. And then again, he sees the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we saw and talked about just last week. He's seen his wife of advanced age have the joy of giving birth and even had laughter brought back into her life through it. This is what authentic faith looks like. And oftentimes we forget that faith is putting your, your money where your mouth is, so to speak, or it's, or it's when the rubber hits the rose or fill it in with any other idiom that you like to use. It's more than just saying that you say that God is good, gracious, perfect, and holy and just. But it's living that those truths are real. And they exist within the, the heartbeats of your soul. And this is why God does what he does. So that when his people respond like Abraham, God is then magnified. So when people watch us, the church, the body of Christ, people see us when we go through our Isaac tests, our tests similar to what Abraham to go through, whatever it may look like, with unwavering faith in Christ and his Holy Spirit. God uses that to draw people, yes, even to repentance and to faith. And the greatest gospel testimony we can give to the people around us is not merely that is not merely just following God when life is good, no, but relentlessly following him when life is even horrible. Or when we must endure the test of our faith. When people watch us going through this, they see us when we lean on the Lord, or they'll see us if we choose to then abandon God. Don't forget Job and his wife. What was it that Job's wife said when Job went through his trial? His wife said, curse God and die. And then Job said, don't I receive both? the good and the bad from my Lord? When people see that, when people see us at our worst, still faithful to God, then they know they're looking at the genuine article. That's when they know they're looking at someone that believes in Jesus Christ. You know, we live in such a messed up world 
And I'm always and I'm always humble that when I find myself watching the news and you hear another case where someone has committed a murder or you see another case of a drunk driving accident that led to the death of someone and they're interviewing the family and every so often this family will say something along the lines of I am praying for this person right now. And they may even say in that interview, I forgive them and I pray they find Jesus. And it always takes me back because it's like, you know, to go through what that person is going through and still say with their lips, there is salvation in Jesus Christ for you. There's still forgiveness for you in spite of what you've done. It's an incredible testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. So yes, authenticity of our faith springs up in these challenges. Now, I want to go back. And I want to look at Dr. Wearsby's statement that we read before. He said, our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, to expect what seems impossible. And if sacrificing your own son as a burnt offering doesn't seem unreasonable, then I don't know what does seem unreasonable. Hearing this certainly would have shocked Abraham to his core. But there is no hesitation in his response to obedience. God said, go to the mountain. Immediately, Abraham prepares. And he begins to go in that direction. And the text simply says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. That is an act of obedience. God called Abraham to go. Abraham went. And these aren't trivial things. There's no response here of Abraham questioning God. There's no questioning the morality of human sacrifice. There's nothing. There's not even argument. It's just simple obedience. And I think this is what confounds people like Dawkins, where he says, uh, where Abraham doesn't even argue. He just begins to, he just begins to, to walk. And yet, this is the kind of faith God wants from us, his followers. Now, here is where we need to be careful. This is where uh, men like Dawkins, and then there's others, uh, Hitchens, and, and uh, another one named Barker, that they pounce on. How are we to know if God is not asking us to do exactly the same thing that Abraham did? Who are we to say that someone can't offer up their child as an act of obedience to God today? I'll admit, the first time I got this question was when I was teaching, I was teaching a couples group. So, so it was husbands and wives, um, and we were going through a portion of text, and this question came up. And I'll admit, I wasn't quite sure how to answer it initially. And I was so thankful when the classroom bell went off, because then it was time to go on to the next lesson. God forgive me for not being prepared. But we need to remember some things. And they're crucial to remember in order to avoid misinterpreting and misapplying what we're seeing in this text. The first thing to remember is this, and we've already mentioned, 
God, first off, we know God did not allow Abraham to kill Isaac. And Abraham knew, or at least Abraham had an idea that this would be the case the whole time because even Abraham, when he spoke to his men, said, we will both return. So Abraham had an idea. Remember, Abraham spent time with God and had talked with him and knew him. Second, we also know that, you know, even today we no longer offer burnt offerings to any kind to God. And we know that Jesus Christ was the supreme sacrifice offered to God on behalf of sinners. So such a thing does not apply to us even today because we no longer give these kind of sacrifices. It was made suffice in Christ. We also need to remember that Abraham was the one that held the Abrahamic covenant the covenant to his people. And God's testing was in direct relation to Abraham's leadership and to that covenant. We are not the bearers of that covenant. Abraham was. So it was a unique testing also for that reason. So to say that this text teaches us that God is pleased when we obey him to kill our children is, is a ridiculous statement. It takes, the, it takes the story out of the context in which it was, it was written. It ignores the, the total history of Abraham. It ignores the promises of God. It ignores what Jesus Christ does for us even today in his sacrifice. It is why we need to be careful that when we have atheistic philosophers that tell us what to believe about these stories and why our God is crazy or evil, it's the reason why we should not give them weight. Because they ignore so much to try to make their argument sound valid. The swift obedience to whatever God asked of Abraham is the principle that we take from this. And let's not forget Isaac's willingness to go along with his father. Isaac knew something wasn't quite right. Isaac was probably a young man, and since Abraham was almost a century old, he could have easily taken his father down physically. But he allowed his father to bind him. He allowed his father to put him on the altar. Whatever was going on in his mind, and I'm sure his mind was probably racing, He trusted his dad, just as Abraham was trusting God. So let's look at this obedience and consider what it might look like today. It's not hard for us to obey something we feel God is asking us to do when it makes sense. (laughs) Let's say we have two employment opportunities. One job offers like, $120,000 a year plus full benefits and a pension. Just so you know, pensions aren't normal anymore. That's why I threw that in there. The other offers $30,000 a year with partial benefits. And if we feel God is leading us to take the the $120,000 job, guess what? Obedience is pretty easy in that situation. Sure, God, $120,000 a year and all, but that sounds great by me. But let's say that it is rather obvious that God... What, but, but what would honor God more? 
depending on the job. What if the job that only paid $30,000 in partial benefits was the one that would glorify God more? Well, then obedience becomes a little bit harder, doesn't it? Because now we're in conflict with what logically we think would work better for ourselves versus what spiritually God may be calling us to do to glorify Him. It's hard to obey in tough situations because we want things to make sense to us. And sometimes we fail to recognize that things, that things will always make sense to God. And God is not in the business of confusing Himself. Things may, but things may not always make sense to us. But they always make sense to Him. When He asks us to do things, He always has a reason. He always has a plan. He always has His purpose in mind. But in this case, we see that it was to show Abraham that God was indeed the provider. The provider for him, the provider for Isaac, the one that will be the provider for his people, and the one that will be, yes, the provider for us as well. God wants us to be followers, to do what he asks of us, not people who obey when it's convenient or, or justify our disobedience when things seem unreasonable. But when God told Abraham to do something, he did it, even when it seemed outlandish. Now, notice how the story ends. There is no sacrificing of the only son of promise, Isaac. There is no child death. There is no immoral action. There is no tragedy. But there is a blessing. It ends with a blessing, and it ends with the revealing of God as the provider of all blessings. God, indeed, blesses obedience that comes from faith. Just as Abraham knew God would, God provided the lamb for the burnt offering. He provided the sacrifice. Abraham had bound Isaac. The altar was set and Abraham draws his knife. And the picture we get from the text is that the knife was raised and Abraham was only split seconds away from making that final commitment. And then it was the angel that stepped up and called out his name, Abraham, Abraham, and he stopped. And Abraham looks and there's the ram in the thicket. And God provides a suitable offering for Abraham in place of Isaac. And then he reconfirms his covenant with him. It's in the same way that God blesses and obey and the obedience of his children. When we set aside our self-sufficiency and, and we recognize that we can indeed trust God in all things and follow him accordingly, God blesses us. The example we just used. God may bless us with a life that may be ten times more fulfilling than the one that would have paid us $120,000. It might be that the $30,000 job not only was the one that glorified God, but in knowing that we glorify God, will be the one that helps satisfy the work. He rewards obedience. And He does so that we might, yes, be grateful to Him. And worship Him even more. His blessings, yes, always have a larger purpose than simply our benefit. 
but it is ultimately our blessing is meant to glorify him more. Last thing I want to point out about this story. This account of Abraham and and Isaac introduces an important theological term called substitutionary atonement. And in case you don't remember what that is, this is the doctrine that states that God acted as a wrath-satisfying substitute for sinners in Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross and he rose again, And we are privileged to get a glimpse of that here in this text. Let's see the parallel. The ram is a substitute for Isaac. And who provides the ram? God. In the same way, God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. He also provides in Christ a substitute sacrifice for us sinners. The word of 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And again in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Isaac nearly died, we deserve to die. But we will not die if we trust and have faith in Jesus Christ, because he has stepped in as the perfect Lamb of God. So we not only have a lesson on the blessings, yes, of obedience that we see in Abraham and Isaac, but also a lesson on how atonement works. The death of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death, is foreshadowed here. So as we prepare to close this evening, I want you to ask yourself, how might God be testing your faith? in order to reveal how authentic it is or to reveal what God is still working on in you. Maybe you don't sense any testing or stretching right now, but how have you seen God test your faith in the past then? And how has that strengthened you and enabled you to show your faith, yes, to others in real life circumstances? And we need to ask ourselves, what are we willing to do with what God asks of us. Will we obey his word, even though in certain situations it doesn't always make sense? See, Christianity is not an irrational faith, but ultimately, rationality does not rest on our minds. We can't comprehend all that God is. It rests in the mind of our omniscient and perfect God. So if things don't always make sense to us, but we know what God is calling us to do, it's not up to us to make sense of it. God already does. As Isaiah the prophet reminds us with these familiar words, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And there in the context of Isaiah, he tells us that though it may not make sense to us that an infinitely holy God would pardon the greatest of sinners, he does so by his grace. And just as he understands why and how he does that, he understands why and how he does each and everything in our lives. So just as Abraham did, 
let us trust him as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, for your love and for your blessings. Lord, for the opportunities to be obedient to what you call us to do. God, help us to be wise stewards of your call. And help us, Lord, to trust you. And I pray, Lord, that we are obedient in what you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for uh, this church. We thank you for this body of believers. God, we thank you for your Son, who, Lord, became the sacrifice in our place. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen.